Father, we need you to be as you always are, and that is present. But we need your spirit to believe that you are. We cannot conjure or contrive that feeling. We cannot tell ourselves something that is not true. We must lean upon that which we cannot see, and yet which we have many reasons to believe. And so we would pray that you would come unto us and abide with us, the one who calls himself Emmanuel, and that we might take comfort, courage, consolation, and whatever else we might need in this hour of need. We ask it in the one who invites us to pray boldly and who calls us to lean in and listen well. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't heard already, this is the first Sunday in Advent, which is, according to the Christian calendar, the first Sunday of the new year. So happy new year. Advent, as Walt told you at the beginning of our service, literally and essentially means arrival. And so in Advent, we are considering two arrivals, one that's already happened and one that's still to come. And therefore, we live between two arrivals. And in that sense, therefore, Advent, for all of its pomp, for all of its specialness, is in some sense like every Sunday. We all live between two arrivals, and we always want to consider what does it mean to live between the two of them. Advent, in that sense, is every season. And there's a woman named Fleming Rutledge who said that in so many words, but to put it in the most bracing way, she said this, in a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. The disappointment, the brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. It's where we are. It's where we shall be until that second arrival occurs. And it's a helpful sort of corrective for us to consider here on this first Sunday of Advent when you consider that for the next 30 days of your life, you're going to be bombarded with what feels like a mandate to be happy. And surely you'll have many reasons to enjoy it. But if we are honest with ourselves, you cannot ignore all that is what she says, full of disillusionment, disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain. Which makes this sort of cultural phenomenon in our day a bit of a challenge. The point that we say to one another, both to strangers and those we're familiar with, we say the words, Merry Christmas. You'll hear it at the checkout line. You'll hear it on the street. You'll hear it in a variety of places. You'll hear it all the time. And that whole word, Merry, seems to fly in the face of these words of Fleming Rutledge, disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain. And so you wonder, is that a fake sort of thing? Is it an intentional opportunity to ignore certain realities that we just can't ignore? Look, you're going to have all sorts of reasons, perhaps, over the next 30 days or so, in which to enjoy delightful things. The parties you go to, the people you see, the things you consume, the surprises that you find, and all of those provide for you delight. But we know that there's an undercurrent 
that none of those things can really be a substitute or another, not really a remedy for. They may be additive, but they're not redemptive. So how can you, with a good conscience, say, Merry Christmas? I will tell you, there's a reason. Mary comes from the old English word, meridge, which means pleasing and delight. And though there are any number of things that you will experience in these next days, perhaps, that provide you that, my argument is you can still say with a clear conscience, Mary, even in the face of disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain. Why? I want to show you a really 30 brief clip from the show Once. A brief exchange between two women regarding having given a book to a young child who is facing great triumph great challenge, great travail. Listen to this very brief exchange. How's the book supposed to help? What do you think stories are for? These stories, the classics, there's a reason we all know them. They're a way for us to deal with our world. Well, it doesn't always make sense. Look, I gave the book to him because I wanted Henry to have the most important thing anyone can have. Believing in even the possibility of a happy ending is a very powerful thing. What are stories? They're all sorts of things. And they can provide all sorts of wonderment and awe and gratitude and satisfaction. And whatever book that she gave to that child was, what was that story out to provide him? The very possibility of a happy ending. The very possibility of hope. Look, The story of the incarnation is a story that has a happy ending. But it's more than a story. And the reason that I can say to you with a straight face, Merry Christmas in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your despair, in the midst of your heartbreak, is because this story is, as C.S. Lewis put it, the myth that became a fact. Now, when you hear the word myth, you immediately jump to the idea of it being a fairy tale, something that it lacks truth. It's just a story we want to believe. That's not really what a myth is. A myth is simply a story that's out to offer an explanation of truth to our deepest questions. That's what myths do. That's why myths endure. And C.S. Lewis's argument in a famous essay he wrote many years ago called The Myth That Became Fact he would say that the story of Jesus shares a lot of resemblances to other myths across cultures and eras and languages. And yet what sets Jesus apart is that for all of its mythic quality, it became a fact. That story entered into history, and it is the one that offers us a reason for a happy ending and the reason we can say to each other, Merry Christmas, even if we're weeping. Why can Christmas be merry? Because the myth became fact. And we're going to let Isaiah tell us one story, a story that was told to Israel in around the 7th century before Jesus walked the earth, that has all the appearances of a mythic quality, the idea of a hero coming onto the scene that sounds like, oh, I wish I could believe in that, but I look around and I think it's just impossible. And yet that is the story, we have said, that is beneath the story the story we have in Jesus. And we're going to listen to him, Isaiah, tell us a brief profile 
a brief summary of that story that sounds like a myth, but in Jesus becomes a fact. And we're going to find the five ways in that story in which that myth became a fact. So if you're able to stand, we're in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting pace shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Every text has a context, and as we've said each week, every text in Isaiah has a historical context. And what's happening here early in the book of Isaiah is that Israel and Judah are at each other's throats. They're a divided kingdom, despite being formed and fitted to be a united people, to be a blessing upon all peoples. They're a kingdom that's divided. And in this moment, the northern kingdom, called Israel, enters into an agreement with Syria to its north. And they start threatening Judah. Israel's brother to the south, and Judah is faced with a choice. What will it do to find refuge against its warring brother and its new foreign ally? And Isaiah comes to Judah and says, look, trust the Lord. But somebody else comes to the king of Judah and says, look, trust us. And that's the imperious nation of Assyria. Assyria has come on the scene They've begun to enlarge their territories. They look like a fearsome group of people with whom to align. And they're saying, trust us. Become in league with us. We'll protect you against your northern neighbors. And I say, don't do it. And Judah says, no. They look like the horse to go with. And at the front end, Judah looks to Assyria for protection. But as the relationship matures, or you rather becomes more corrupt, Judah starts to take on more of Assyria than just her protection. 
she began to take on the whole of the way she sees the world, including her religious faith. And Judah suffers as a consequence of that. What looked like a great promise, a great source of refuge and protection in time, becomes Judah's undoing. And that, if you'll permit what isn't, I think, too much of a stretch, it is the human condition. We are threatened by something outside ourselves. We are presented with what looks like a source of protection and refuge, and we sign up, and when we do, we end up signing over more of us than we anticipated. And we find ourselves decimated because we thought they were a place of safety, because we thought they were a place of security. And in fact, we end up with less than what we began with. That is where Judah is in this moment. And it is a moment that you and I perhaps find ourselves in more moments than we would like to admit. But before Judah makes that fateful choice, Isaiah says to him, look, look, I know you can't see it right now, but I see it. Assyria is going to be a flash in the pan. And somebody's going to come for their throats, and they'll be brought to their knees. Don't trust them. But instead, I want you to know that someone is coming to lead Israel and Judah again. Someone that you can trust. Someone who has a heart that you might find great refuge in. And that one will come from the very root of Jesse. Who was Jesse? Jesse was King David's father. And for anybody in Israel to hear the word Jesse or David invoked is to invite some skepticism. Because it was only a few years, not that long after David dies, that the kingdom is split. And so David appears to be a people and a line that has been written out of the history of the Lord. And Isaiah is here to say that's not the case. Someone will rise from that line. And from that line will lead you into a new season of strength and of glory. Even though he looks to you as one who is a stump. And if you've ever just stood over a large stump you realize it's almost a mournful kind of thing to see. That which is so formidable in your midst with with dozens, if not hundreds of rings in front of you that once stood towering high above you, that towered over you like nothing can and gave refuge to everyone into whom it found its way into their branches and now that thing is gone, that's how they saw David. That's how they saw the line of Jesse. And yet Isaiah is here to say one will come from their league. And the way he describes, first of all, this king, this future leader, is what sounds like a myth at first. But it's actually a myth that became a fact. And that first aspect of the myth is one of a sovereign shepherd. Listen to what he says again in verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah doesn't specify who this king is. If you look to what the rabbinical scholars who've studied this passage for all of the centuries since that time, they only can conclude one thing, that this is pointing to one who would come who was anointed. One who, in the words of Hebrew, would be one called Messiah. And who is this one? What does he manifest? Insight. Wisdom. A grasp 
of who the very essence and being and mission of God is. One upon whom the Spirit rests in some mysterious way. This is that King. And for Israel to hear about that King is for them to think to themselves, it just won't happen. Israel had pined for kings for a very long time. Israel revered their kings no matter how badly or well they functioned. And then when those kings disappointed them, they acted cynically towards any possibility of another king. They were disillusioned by what they saw. And yet this one would come with wisdom. This one would be someone that they might hope for, but they were reluctant to expect. And it's this one that if you trace the lines between this sketch of this king and who Jesus is, you begin to wonder if, in fact, the myth did, in fact, become a fact. What do we know of Jesus? How does he resonate with this initial sketch? He is the one, when baptized by someone named John, it says, upon whom the Spirit of the Lord rested, upon whom the blessing of God fell, upon whom the accolade of the Father spoke, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And how is he regarded when he speaks, having no credentials, having no reputation until he comes on the scene? He is the one who speaks with authority. And yet even though he speaks with authority, he speaks also with great compassion. He does not let the authority with which he speaks and the way in which he acts ever be an excuse for giving attention to those who are on the margins of society, who are the least and the lost among them. This is the one who appears to be a sovereign servant. And and you and I hear that and we think, well, what's the big deal? And yet we understand, we know people who lead us and would lead us to take that hill at any stretch of the imagination. And we know people who can kind of get lost in others, being so kind and caring. But we consider the very synthesis of those two things, one who speaks with authority and yet who acts with sympathy. Oh, Oh, those two things, they rarely come together, and yet this one, we find it. I want to show you a really brief clip from a a movie that came out about 25 years ago called Dave. Kevin Kline plays two characters, one of which is the President of the United States, who is a gruff, brazen, awful, self-consumed womanizer, and who, in a compromised position, has a heart attack and ends up in a coma, But because those who are in his cabinet are as power-hungry as he is, they go out and look for somebody that looks exactly like the president to pretend that the president is still just fine. No one knows the real president's in a coma. And so they find this guy, a small business owner with no name or reputation to himself, who looks exactly like the president to pretend that he is in order to keep continuity in the government. And so he goes and does what presidents do, to act as the leader of the free world, but also to make visits to all sorts of places, including a homeless shelter for children in this scene. His own first lady doesn't even know that it's not really him. And here in this moment, the president acts like a president, but in a way that makes everybody kind of turn their heads going, wait a minute. This doesn't sound or look like the president that we know. Check it out. One of the things that happens when kids become homeless is they start to lose some communication skills. So here at Helping Hand, they play a lot of games that encourage the kids to relate to each other and to express themselves. Oh, no. 
Poor Joe. He has no hair. Oh, no. Poor Joe. He has no eyes. Right. Very good. Very good. Let's try one more. Everybody together now. Give me everybody. Pay attention. Here we go. Oh, no. Poor Joe. He has no teeth. Great. 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 All right. Hi there. What's your name? David. David. Great name. What are you doing over here, David? Nothing. Hey, guys. Not now. Okay? Thanks. Don't you like playing games with the other kids? No. Do you like magic? It's okay. It's okay? Watch this. Where'd it go? The answer is in this riddle. What can run all day without ever getting tired? Do you know? I'll give you a hint. It's not your ear. Not your mouth. My nose. Your nose, exactly. And look up. There it is. See? He was there all the time. See? Went up in the air. I'm feeling my nose. Yeah. Is First Lady still there? The leader of the free world, who the small business owner ends up going to cabinet meetings and start acting rather decisively and deliberately and actually at variance with the way his cabinet would have him act. But here he is sitting down with some kid that he's never met before, and he doesn't want the limelight. He doesn't want the press reports. He doesn't want the attention. He just wants to care for this kid. And in that moment, you see somebody who is demonstrating great authority as the office that he holds and yet great sympathy for those who are on the margins. This is the myth that becomes fact. It shows up in our stories. And what Isaiah is sketching there is the one who comes full in living color and who we find in Jesus. He is the one who acts with authority, but he doesn't care. He does not take it in by that. And it's the first aspect of this, what feels like a myth that just can't be true and ends up coming forth into living color. And that's, that's just an introduction to the next aspect of this myth that becomes a fact. And that's coming from two words that you don't typically hear smushed together in a text but when it says there in verse 3 and his delight shall be in the fear of the lord now delight and fear um you're at a roller coaster at the ag center in september you feel delight and fear at the same time that's not what he means here by delight and fear in fact the essence of the word there for delight is what you may have felt if you were fortunate when you walked into grandma's on thursday and the first thing you noticed when you hit the door was the smell it was the aroma, the, the symphony of culinary scents that were wafting through wherever you found yourself. If you were kind enough to experience that, if you were fortunate enough to experience that. That's a pleasing smell. What, and, and what is this servant's, what is this king's delight in? Obedience. Doing the will of the Lord. It's not a begrudging thing. 
It's not a, I'll just submit to him so that I can get him off my back so I can do whatever else I want to do. This is a submission that he holds with savor, which are words that, again, you and I don't usually put together. But when we consider who, what we find in Jesus, we hear what he says in John chapter 5. He says, I don't do anything. I truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Jesus is not in a begrudging form of obedience. He loves to do what he does. He savors being in submission to his father. And again, it sounds so funny. And yet, there is more to it. And there's more possibility in it than you might imagine. Henry Nouwen was a Roman Catholic priest. He, he taught seminarians for decades on what it meant to be a priest. He ends up teaching at Harvard Divinity School and then realizes the whole role and um, responsibility is kind of going to his head. So what does he do? He leaves Harvard Divinity School and he moves in with a community of disabled people called La Arch, founded by another Roman Catholic priest named Jean Vanier. And he lives among a people who can't do anything for themselves, who can't, who can't be entrusted to any responsibility in and of themselves. And by living in that community, he is thereby not just living in their midst, not just having meals with them, he is actually tasked with doing tasks with them and they with him. And so he tells this story in his book, In the Name of Jesus, all about leadership, which I wholly commend to you. He talks about one time being responsible to go to Washington, D.C. to give a speech. And the community says, you should take somebody with you. And he goes, okay, don't really do that, but okay. And so they pick Bill. His name is Bill. Among them, perhaps the most mentally capable of the people that are around there. And so he and Bill fly to D.C. They check in at the hotel. And Bill's saying to, to Henry Nowen, oh boy, we're going to do this together. And the next day they wake up. They go to the venue where the speech will be given. Henry and Bill sit down next to each other. Henry is invited up to the podium. He steps up to the podium, and what does Bill do? He gets up too and walks over to the podium and stands behind him. Henry now begins to give his speech about leadership. And Bill takes it upon himself that whenever Henry Nowen has finished a page, he takes the page and sets it nicely down on the table right before him. And whenever Henry Nowen starts quoting a text of Scripture, Bill goes, I've heard that before. And then when Nowen finishes his speech... He goes and sits down, and Bill stays at the podium and says, could I say a few words? And Henry goes, sure. Would everyone please give their attention to Bill? And Bill stands there, and he says, last time, when Henry went to Detroit, he took Joe, but this time he took me. Thank you very much. And he sits down. (laughs) And on the plane ride home, Henry says to Bill, was this a good time? Yes, it was. Why was it a good time, Bill? Because we did this together. Obedience and delight in the same soul, in the same moment. All he did was drop pages on a table, and I heard that before too, and yet here is one in whom there is no guile, taking great delight in doing something simple and mundane and taking joy in it. And if that can be true, of one who is handicapped in some way. How can it not also be true for the one who is the author of life, who looked to the least and the lost, and who rejoiced in what he did? In fact, you can't explain all that Jesus does 
apart from the joy set before him. This is the myth of a sovereign shepherd that becomes fact. This is the myth of obedience and delight being married together that becomes a fact. Which explains the third aspect. This is the one who acts with justice towards the weakest and the wicked. And he says it most fiercely in a word very sketchily and faintly traced there in verses 3 and 4. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, now he's getting in our business. These are fierce words about what he is committed unto doing. And why does he do what he does? And why is it such a marvel? Because what usually happens to the weakest among us? They're ignored. And what happens usually to those who are wicked? They are pandered to. The weakest who have no voice are those who are ignored. The wicked who usually are wicked because they prey upon the weakest... They are the ones who have prestige and influence and power, and nobody wants to mess with them, and so they're ignored, if not accommodated. But this king, whoever he might be, is taken in by neither. He responds in a different way. He marches to the beat of a different drum. And surely we see in Jesus the faint traces here in Isaiah 11 of who we see in him in living color. He went to those who everybody else had written off. He sat with the ones whose society thought beneath them or unworthy of their attention or regard. And when it came to those with power or prestige or influence, Jesus was not taken in by that. He did not pander them. He did not accommodate them. And sometimes, rather than write, seek to destroy them, he, out to del- he was out to deliver them from their own callousness. If you want to believe that perhaps what Isaiah speaks of here in chapter 11 is a myth, I think you can see that it becomes a fact in who he is. Folks, whether you are a believer in him or whether you are one who has great respect for him, the degree to which he has inspired people to look and and give their concern to those who are weakest, the degree to which Jesus has inspired that is immeasurable. So too the way he has inspired those to either seek justice or to wait for that justice until it might come. He is the one who lives out that concern. He is the one who goes to the least and shows them dignity. And he is the one who is out to tell us that justice is not an idle tale that lives in a corner. He manifests that. And he also manifests it in the fourth aspect of the myth that becomes fact. He is the one that's come to answer our greatest fears. The most bizarre part of this passage is what feels like the moment when we transition from wild kingdom onto Disney World. When you hear in verses 6, 7, and 8, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall be lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And everybody's gasping, going, Wait a minute, this sounds like the plot line to The Lion King. Right? 
A young child born from a hallowed line that we thought was lost now comes to learn and to lead everyone with equity. And now everybody that is usually at each other's throats out to kill one another, if only to survive, now they're all bowing before him in praise and harmony. That's the Lion King. That's also these three verses. So is Isaiah suggesting that the whole animal kingdom is transformed in the wake of this leader's advent? Mm. It's more imagery out for another point. What does that rather vivid imagery point to? The things of which you and I are most anxious. The fears and the threats all around us. The reasons why we cower in fear or the reasons we lash out in sort of a self-protective form of terror. You and I all have our anxieties. You and I face things that we can't seem to shake. In another wondrous long-read article about Mr. Rogers this week, he was heard to say this. It's hard, isn't it? I think there are many people who bring a whole lot of baggage from their past and a whole lot of anxiety about the future to the present moment. What's so great is that people can be in relationship with one another for the now. If we can somehow rid ourselves of illusions, the illusions that we are greater or lesser than we are, the illusion that we're going to save the world There are a lot of illusions that people walk around with. But I would love to be able to be present in every moment I have. And he was. And it's why I wept in his film. Because he seemed to be free. And available. Because something had solved something deep within him. And whatever plagued him about his past, or might have concerned him about his future, somehow were kept at bay. And what this Isaiah 11 sketches out to do is to say that this king will come and address those deepest fears. And what do we find in Jesus, him saying so often to those who knew him best, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? He was the one to come who acknowledged to us that in this world you're going to have trouble. He didn't flinch from that. He didn't hide that. He didn't pretend that wasn't true. But he also said in the same breath, in this world you'll have trouble, but take care. I have overcome the world. And if you're in me, then we have the same destiny. He's come to answer our greatest fears. He's come to attest to a reason for us to walk with freedom. And that is because of the last aspect of this myth that became a fact. This king is out to answer what we're all looking for, whether we admit it or not. What we're all looking for is one thing, home. And you hear it put rather evocatively in the last two verses. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Exactly. That this one who was a sovereign shepherd, who married obedience and delight, who acted with justice to the weakest and the wicked, he will be the one who becomes a beacon, a signal, like a, like a, like a lighthouse, the one who who orients us and who draws us and leads us to a place of safety. He will become a beacon. To whom? To the nations, it says. 
Which if you're Israel and you hear that, you think that at first odd and then surprising and then maybe at the end of it a little off-putting. Why? Because it's the nations who at first allured Israel and then seduced Israel and then savaged Israel and left her for dead. And yet it's these who at some point will see this king, the one who comes and think to themselves, I will follow him. Why? Because it says his resting place will be glorious. That what he has in himself is something that you and I might uh, 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 consider to be something called home. A place of welcome and of warmth and of kindness and of joy. We're all looking for home. And this one has come to offer it to anyone who is seeking it and who is willing enough to acknowledge that that's what they're looking for. Why do we think Jesus is the answer and the factual basis for what feels like a myth? Because he is the one who submitted himself like a servant who made himself like a shepherd, who denied himself that he might, for the joy set before him, endure the cross, despise its shame, didn't care what curse came upon him, so that you and I might find our home in who the Lord is through his blood. That's how he leads us home. That's how he's the answer to our mythic longings. He is not less than a myth but he is surely a fact. He not only shows us something in history, but he provokes our awe and our wonder. And that is why we listen unto him. What Tish Harrison Warren says is something we all have to grapple with. Advent reminds us in one way or another that we are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it contributing our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. I know in some ways you have borne the brunt of that. But if we are honest with ourselves, we have also been the source of it. And it is this one, the one where the myth became fact, who invites even us unto his table, who invites even us into his family, who invites even us into his inheritance. What do you do with all that? Here's the application. Ready? You and I are, are in danger of falling into one of two scripts during Advent, both of which are like characters in a Christmas carol. You and I might become like the carolers that you hear Scrooge yell, bah, humbug that. The ones who never go off script and who always smile and just sort of sing because it's what we do. And then there's the other script of Scrooge himself who can't even deny, who can't even entertain the possibility there might be a reason for hope. One settles for a very superficial version of it. The other denies the very possibility of it. Advent invites us to consider neither script, but actually to prepare him room. How do we do that? I've given you five ways from Isaiah 11 that might speak to how the myth became a fact how he's a sovereign shepherd, how he united obedience and delight, how he worked with justice, both for the weakest and the wicked, how he came to answer both our deepest fears and to welcome us home. Pick one, pick one. Sit with it during Advent.
Think on it during Advent. Wrestle with it during Advent. And let the wrestling turn you to prayer during Advent. And then respond. Write about it. Paint about it. Sculpt about it. Write poetry about it. Do something about it. Prepare him room by taking one way in which the myth became fact into the entirety of these days. And let's see what happens in you. Let it frame your days. Let it inspire your prayers. Let it catalyze your actions. And then come tell me the story. Let's pray. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the world began to be, He is Alpha and Omega, He the source, the ending, He of the things that are, that have been, and that future you shall see. Evermore and evermore.